Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the franchise. The franchise. A podcast miniseries dedicated to your favorite movie franchises. This is the franchise. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is a 2001 British-American fantasy film directed by Chris Columbus. Based on the novel of the same name by J.K. Rowling, the story follows Harry Potter's first year at Hogwarts, his discovery of his wizard heritage, and the making of new friends Hermione and Ron Weasley. Production began in the United Kingdom in 2000. Chris Columbus had been chosen to direct the films amongst the shortlist of Steven Spielberg and Rob Reiner. It received positive reviews and went on to make over $970 million at the box office. It was nominated for the Academy Awards Best Original Score, Best Art Direction, and Best Costume Design. As of December 2015, it was the 30th highest-grossing film of all time and the second highest-grossing film in the series behind the final film, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets was also directed by Chris Columbus and released on November 3rd, 2002. It follows the further adventures of Harry Potter and his friends during their second year at Hogwarts as they battle Voldemort yet again. It's the first time we meet Dobby the House Elf, Moaning Myrtle, and learn of Lord Voldemort's birth name, Tom Marvolo Riddle. The film opened to an 88.4 million opening weekend, making it the third largest opening of all time, behind Spider-Man and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. It was also number one at the box office for two non-consecutive weekends. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets was nominated for three BAFTA awards, and also later for six Saturn Awards in 2003 and 2004 for its DVD release. You're listening to the franchise. In this episode, we will be discussing Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone and Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. My name is Razzle, and this is Kyle Newman. Wow. Harry Potter. Um, Everyone knows I'm a pretty big Star Wars fan, but I think uh, second to that is my love of Harry Potter. So I am really, really excited to dive into this franchise of films. Uh, Joining us today, we've got an esteemed panel. Um, As always... We have uh, Jimmy Mack, our producer, and uh, voice of reason sometimes coming from Chicago, our uh, sound wizard over there. How's it going, Jimmy Mack? Are you ready to talk about Harry Potter? Well, you know what, guys? This is pretty exciting for me. This is really exciting for me because typically when we do these episodes of the franchise, we all are um, 
kind of experts in our field when it comes to uh, talking about uh, whatever subject matter we're talking about. And here we are at Harry Potter. And I have to admit to everyone that I just recently saw all of the films. I binge watched <gasps> them because I did it for my brother, Kyle Newman. I promised him this year <laughs> I would watch the Harry Potter films. And lo and behold, my days of being a muggle are long behind me. I know all about Gryffindor and Slytherin and, and Dumbledore and everything. But but I've never read the books. Harry Potter was never part of my cultural fabric uh, as a fanboy in any way, shape, or form. I'm known for Star Wars, talking Star Wars every week on Rebel Force Radio. So it's going to be kind of interesting for me to take a break from that to talk about Harry Potter. But even more interesting is the fact that I have never had a conversation about the Harry Potter films or books, the books which I have not read, but Harry Potter, I've never had a Harry Potter conversation with anyone in my life before. So this is new territory for me. Um, oh, this I, is exciting. I, Kyle, I know that your knowledge of this franchise is off the hook. And other people we're going to be talking to in upcoming episodes, their knowledge of it is going to be off the hook. So I hope I can just like represent the maybe more casual fan, the movie fan who went to see the Harry Potter films. And I will be asking the stupid questions and I will be giving the stupid answers. And I, I hope that I can maybe represent that aspect of fandom. The, the, the fan that is familiar with the films knows the characters, but it isn't part of a lifestyle thing. It wasn't part of their, their culture growing up. Um, again, like I said, I miss all of that. So uh, well, that's, I'm, I'm that's good. I think that's part of what we're going to talk about today is, you know, there is this legacy of the movies as, uh, books before they were I mean there were there were books before there were films and that's that's part of our conversation um, did your boys though Jimmy really quick did your your father and did your boys uh, grow up with Potter did they read the books or were they into it at all or just wasn't in your household my kids you know they were uh, my, my oldest was born in 99 uh, so uh, obviously he did go to uh, elementary school preschool elementary school all of that as the harry potter thing was hitting and happening and i know he started to read the books he may have made it through one or two of them and i think he just sort of moved on he, he never really got pulled in neither of my boys did and as a matter of fact nobody in my family had actually seen a harry potter film until i started watching them and i wow. binged watch them too so apologies if i start getting confused with the films and everything to because to me it's all just one big sprawling epic film and um and i'm just i'm just really curious to see what really kind of that I took to heart the things I really soaked in. And then I'm sure there's a lot of really important things that might've just gone right over my head. So I'm looking forward to building upon this newfound fandom I have for Harry Potter. Great. Now what we're going to do with the format of this uh, season, so everyone knows right off the bat is we are going to talk, we're, we're going to have five episodes and first two uh, films in the series, Sorcerer's Apprentice and Chamber of Secrets, are what we're talking about today. And next episode will be Prisoner of Azkaban and Goblet of Fire. And our third episode will be uh, Order of the Phoenix and Half-Blood Prince. And we'll finish that up with uh, The Deathly Hallows, Part 1 and 2. And then we're going to all um, we're gonna bring us more people and talk about Fantastic Beast once uh, we get to see that. Now, we're talking about Harry Potter films, too, today. And we do have somebody who was in a Harry Potter film. Yes. We have a familiar voice returning, Mr. Uh, Master Paul Bateman, Jedi Master Paul Bateman from 
from England, originally from Nottingham, <laughs> currently in London, uh, production designer and film aficionado, Paul Bateman. Uh, also, tell us about how you, you were in this, uh, <laughs> The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yeah, I was in I was in uh, a bunch of them. I did four altogether. Athena did uh, two. My squeeze did the two of the ones that I missed. So we nearly had a full set, but not quite. But uh, yeah, I, I like, like, like Jimmy, I was kind of like the books were not. Like on my radar when the first film was kind of going into production and it was all kind of brand new to me so I had no idea what to expect but um, it was it was a, a really strange kind of experience kind of jumping into this kind of whole adventure without really being familiar with the books when it seemed that every other person in England was really really passionate about the books so so I actually read you know, like I kind of dipped into them when I was on set just because I was kind of curious to know more about what I was looking at and where where I was and and what was kind of happening, you know, just trying to kind of make sense of the things around me. So, um, yeah, definitely much more familiar with the with the movies than I am with the books. Uh, you know, I, I kind of st- I used to stick them on my earphones and listen to the the Stephen Fry versions that are like about twenty four hours long. I think each one. Yeah, but, uh, that's great. I experienced them that way too, Paul. I, I've read uh, them. I've listened to the audio adaptations. And I've um, obviously seen the movies many times. And on a weekly basis, I go to the theme park uh, here in Los Angeles to go to Wizarding World. Just sometimes nice. go for two hours, get some butterbeer. Butter and, and I, dude, butterbeer is so good. And I bring my friend Georgie Flores, who is on tonight. And Georgie mm-hmm. is a is a super geek. Georgie's super a geek. big Star Wars fan, a huge Harry Potter fan, and she's also an actress on a brand new series. You want to tell us about that, Georgie, and also about your Harry Potter love. And Lord of the Rings. Oh, and Lord of the Rings. Got to got to keep the Trinity. Come on. Come on. <laughs> oh, and I also called the Sorcerer's Apprentice before. It's Sorcerer's Stone. They yeah. should have stuck with Philosopher's Stone. Yep. And not switched it. <laughs> yeah. Sorcerer's Apprentice so is a movie with Nicolas Cage. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Talk oh, about good movies. Razzle Paul, right? loves that. Like, Give me some Razzle's like, if I go to a desert island, leave 2001 behind and bring me some <laughs> Sorcerer's Apprentice with Nick Cage. Yeah. Bring me some uh, Face Off, man. <laughs> oh, face yeah. All the classics. Off. <laughs> so Georgie, welcome oh, to the show. Yeah. Thanks, Kyle. This is my first podcast, so I'm, I'm really scared. first podcast ever. First podcast ever. For po- yeah, first wow. podcast ever. Awesome. awesome. Well, well t- tell us about uh, your love of Harry Potter. Then tell us tell us about your show. You got a new show premiering soon, right? Yes, I have a new show. It comes out in April. It's called Famous in Love, um, and I'm I play a version of myself, like a dorky. Uh, theater nerd, so it's uh, it's pretty cool. And it's on ABC's Freeform, right? AB, yes. ABC Family changed their name to Freeform, and that's yeah. That's, that's awesome. Congrats, and welcome Thanks. to our our franchise podcast. We're gonna we're gonna get right into the Harry Potter conversation here. So we all know uh, Harry Potter began as a series of books. Um, do you think the films have fully eclipsed the printed format, or have they truly embraced all that is wonderful about the book series? And even if you haven't read the books. Everyone here knows the books were a big deal before they became a movie franchise. Yeah. And that's how people first discovered Harry Potter. It was the you know, front page of USA Today every other week. It was like, Harry Potter storming the planet, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's, I probably got into it maybe the, maybe the third book I got into it. And I'll be honest, I almost put it down until I got to page 80 because not much happens until... Um, you know, Hagrid shows up. At what? least it felt very one-dimensional to me. I don't know. This is my first impression. Prisoner yeah. of Azkaban? And then, oh, my God. No, this okay. is an, in Sorcerer's, uh, Sorcerer's Stone. Stone. I, I didn't fall in love with it on 
first read at first oh, by the oh, time I got oh, to the yeah, end of the book yeah. I read it again but it was a little slow to get going for me yeah um, so what are you what is your perception of it all uh, Paul I mean obviously this began in England it was called the Philosopher's Stone first um, what was the buzz over there before it became a movie franchise and, and what do you think about how it's evolved you being also on set for a lot of this stuff oh, well it was it was it was strange I mean you know I kind of I think I was the wrong age group you know in, in terms of kind of you know the kids that were really really super passionate about it you know I wasn't really kind of part of that that crowd you know it was the wrong kind of age range you know <laughs> for me didn't know a lot of kids and stuff like that but you, you kept hearing it on television you know we were talking about Harry Potter Harry Potter all the time and then um, when we when we first got involved in in the movies you know it was clear that every single kid that was on set had already read the book and uh, everybody was completely stoked to be a part of the movie even though we had no idea how the film was going to turn out, you know. Um, but we, we immediately uh, understood that, that, you know, the word that was coming down from on high was it was going to be an exceptionally kind of English project that they were looking to kind of like encapsulate a lot of stuff that people kind of think is is cute about England, you know, like the whole mm-hmm. the whole look and vibe of, of various different kind of aspects of English culture. You know, they wanted to kind of keep that alive and make it very much a part of the movies. And uh, they knew that that was going to be a large part of its appeal. You know, internationally. Yeah, very but, much uh, down to the production design and the detail. I mean, yeah. you being on set, but I thought it, it's incredibly authentic. It, and I, I'm glad they stuck to those elements mm. with the films and didn't try it's, to, you know, soften it or yeah. just homogenize mm. it, make it like a global. I mean, feel. everybody did have pretty nice teeth, so that kind of took me out of the English <laughs> plot setting. Oh, jokes, guys! I gotta, I gotta come in with the jokes. Uh, no, but I was reading on Wikipedia, and I definitely agree. Like it, they when they were doing the casting process and everything like that. J.K. Uh, Rowling was very adamant about having like an all English and all British cast. Like she didn't want, which is uh, she wanted it to be be very centralized to like the book's setting and all yeah, that. Because Tom Cruise would have been out of place. Now Razzle's a big Tom Cruise yeah. fan. We had oh, a little man. combo beforehand. <laughs> yeah. But this is Tom an Cruise as Snape would be the best movie. Ever. This is an example of <laughs> an actor that would have <laughs> warped something that I think they did a very good job, you know, protecting the the Englishness, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. decidedly Englishness quality of the of this, the the rainy streets, the little structures like Diagon Alley. It's fantastic, but it also borrows so much from, you know, real places in London. One of the things that was really kind of sweet about it, I mean, something I, you know, Phil should mention up front was. You know, I was I was lucky to be there for the very first day of shooting, and I was there for the very last day of shooting on the last movie. Oh, cool! So I kind wow. of feel like you know I got to experience the whole kind of ride in a, a very kind of unique way. You know, it kind of felt like I've never been on a on a film set that felt quite so familial. You know, like I mean, because these people worked with each other for ten years solidly, and it wasn't like the Star Wars franchise where you know at least in the seventies and eighties it was very spread out, and you know the crews would change quite a lot. You know, uh, the very first day of shooting any of the Harry Potter movies, you know, with the exception, obviously, of some of the key players like the director and whatever, you know, generally, like, the crew was all familiar faces and the very first day of any of the films was, like, kind of just picked up straight from the, from the last one. You know, there was a real kind of comfort feeling as it went, went forward and it was really sweet to sort of, like, see Daniel kind of, like, in his very kind of, you know, his first kind of, taking his first steps into the film industry because he's surrounded by all this, you know, technical know-how and some of the you know the most skilled kind of craftsmen in the business over here you know that have been working for like 30 or 40 years already on on films when the first harry potter movie went into production and here's this little kid daniel he's never been on a film set in his life who was just so wide-eyed you know and leesden was such a huge huge place to 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 be filming these movies and it was initially when when um 
when they started on Harry Potter, it wasn't really kind of very, very well uh, sorted out to, to be a, uh, a production base. I mean, when you when you kind of got in there, it was just really just a big drafty aircraft hangar. I mean, because that's that's what it was for. It was it was built to to make aeroplanes, so it was it wasn't really meant to be a film studio. And they'd only shot like uh, I think a Bond movie and um, Phantom Menace was shot there, but uh, it was there was no soundproofing, so that it required a lot of ADR. Uh, there, there was just zero kind of like heating and it was quite often filming through the winter so these kids were all kind of you know freezing their ears off you know so it was a it was a truly unique experience just because of where we were shooting it as well but a lot of the a lot of the locations that you you see in the movie where you kind of think well that is just such a you know quintessentially kind of english location where it were built from scratch i mean even even privet drive and what have you was was kind of was built right from the ground up and it was you know you could just park your car on the street you know like inside the, the studio grounds but it, it looks like a thousand you know housing estates but they knew that right from the off that they were definitely going to make all of them you know it's uh wow so yeah, you know, that's a good feeling so going rad. into it knowing you're going to make eight films knowing <laughs> you're adapting uh, a true phenomenon I don't think that worked with uh mortal instruments <laughs> but i don't think that was <laughs> as much of a phenomenon but um Going into it, and then also with, the, with these kids, I mean, growing up on camera and the race to get them all captured on film in their teenage years while mm-hmm. you can't really make and release movies as fast as these kids are growing up. And that's something they did, you know, commendably throughout, you know, all eight of these films. I'm sure Fantastic Beasts will have different challenges. Um, so the role, oh, I was going to ask Georgie, when did you first, did you read Harry Potter or did you just get into it as I think films? second book, I remember I was at a book fair in school and finally, you know, one you of my two. friends had, How old are you? I don't even remember, <laughs> I, I don't remember, but it was the first like big book I read, you know, it was always like 30 page books and then one of my friends was reading it, so when the second book came out, I was like, okay, fine, I'm going to go. I think I was like, uh, yeah. So I got it at the book fair, and um, and it was so good. And then I just couldn't wait. So each, every time each book came out, we would. I forced my mom to take me to Barnes and Nobles, and yeah, would, they had the big midnight openings. Yeah, and my sisters were older, so they didn't care. But it was like the first book. I think that what was cool about it is all these kids who, a lot of my friends never read a full you know book yeah then once those books came out then we started reading more because we're like oh my god this is so fun and it was just it captured you from like the first i think 30 (laughs) pages you know you were hooked yeah Yeah. it's definitely the first book i didn't beat my brother up for reading (laughs) oh see i was i remember i was in i was in jamaica and with my wife and i think half-blood prince came out and i was like there's got to be i got to get it here in jamaica and i and i was like where's the bookstore i want to find the like (laughs) No, we don't have Harry Potter, man. And I'm like, what? And I was like stuck down there for a few days, but it wasn't a big deal there. I was like, it's got to be here. There's got to, where's, where's, where's it's, anywhere, please? I'll, I'll be honest. And then I got to Miami airport and it was like everywhere, like it's, every, <laughs> even like the bathroom, there was a guy in the bathroom selling Harry Potter books. Like, it was like, the book is here. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm in Jimmy's sense where I didn't read the books and I, I actually didn't finish watching the, the, the last four of these movies till prepping for the show. I've seen oh. the, 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 I watched the first four in theaters when they came out because all my friends were in on the hoopla but I didn't read the books it's hard for me to really read because my brain will like run and errands and wander and but it's it's definitely the the first book series that I've ever remember having lines stretched around 
buildings mm-hmm. to purchase books. It was almost as big of a phenomenon as the Star Wars prequels buying tickets in advance when you had these people camping out to buy a book, Absolutely. which is really absurd when you think about it, but it it just goes to show how big of a fandom it had that people would yeah. camp out waiting for these new sequels. I, like, I'm excited to expose it to my. I have a, a three-year-old and a 16, nearly 16-month-old 16 and I'm reading them Fox on Socks on Blocks on Knox, you know, and I'm like, when do they get to read some Harry Potter here? Like, when's too early to start? I know the yeah. movies, He's he's gotten into the movies a little bit when I, when I watch them. He, we, I take him to Wizarding World. He's got a wand, an interactive wand, and he's into chocolate frogs. But he, I mean, he can't go on the ride yet because they made the ride for like six feet tall yeah. people or, or bigger. <laughs> it's like I don't even. I'm it's, almost six four. And I don't even know if I can go on the ride. Like every ride at Universal is for like you know forty or older, mm-hmm. and so he can't. He can wander around Wizarding World, but he can only go eat chocolate or get diabetes eating butterbeer yeah. there's nothing else for him to do so I really didn't cater to kids with Wizarding World uh, Universal get your your shit together um, let's talk about the role of the author here uh, J.K. Rowling's influence as a visionary world creator and I think it's akin to you know Walt Disney or George Lucas and you know Jimmy and Paul you guys being Lucasites and Star Wars historians what do you guys think about um, the rare influence of uh, the creator on a film series. And obviously she didn't direct these movies and George didn't direct all of the Star Wars films nor did he write them all. Uh, she didn't adapt all these screenplays. She wrote the core stories and then other people brought them to life. So there's a lot of similarities but do you think she's on par with George Lucas as a creator and also culturally? Wow, that's a that's a really yeah. um, strong thing to consider when you think about mm-hmm. all the decades that we've been you know, consuming Star Wars and other things that George Lucas has spun off. I would say no at this point. Primarily- she didn't rape anyone's childhood yet, right? Uh, not that I've heard, <laughs> based on what you hear about George Lucas. And I was like, George, no, George just- Lucas raped my childhood. You know, like it, it, I haven't heard those complaints about J.K. Rowling yet. Maybe with Fantastic Beasts, yeah. we'll hear that. You know, well, it depends. Oh. See, that's the thing, though, is um, how many different times can she roll the dice and come up a winner? Now, Lucas did so with Star Wars, and he did so with Indiana Jones, and then, and he did mm. so with American Graffiti, for crying out loud. So, I mean, those are three big home runs for Lucas, and thus is really establishing himself as more than just a one-trick pony. Different like characters, different worlds, yes. AK bring something else to the table. I find it interesting, too, because in my limited research, I did do very limited research for this. I saw the films, and that's about it. I binged the films, but I did today go on the Pottermore website for the very first time, <laughs> and I did, okay. look at, I did look at Harry Potter Wikipedia stuff just to kind of get you know some of these character names figured out and whatnot wait what um, house did you get sorted into did you get sorted did i get sorted oh oh with the hat um yeah you, you have to <laughs> i would probably be slithering all the way but uh slithering but uh but it, what's interesting is that in my limited research i did discover that that rowlings was very much a player on the set during the shooting of this film her influence was constantly being felt and so i don't really know much else beyond that like did she actually get into it with the the filmmakers themselves was there any sort of friction there was she being demanding or was it a a fairly peaceful operation all the way through paul says the set felt like a big family so i'm i think that everything in the process went relatively smoothly and maybe paul can shine some light on that too but um i don't know it just seems like for someone 
whose film is being whose book is being made into a film, it seemed like she was hands on much more than any author that I'm aware of. Yeah, you don't see that with Divergent or Hunger Games. I think they defaulted to her a lot. She had a lot of say, I believe, in picking uh, Columbus as a director and where this uh, series ended up uh, in terms of who was making it and how it was being made. And so she retained that kind of distant authorship. So there was the need to be uh, reverent to her. And I think that, you know that's Which something. Is rare, it's isn't almost it? independent because no. you, Jimmy, you're talking about Pottermore, but George Lucas, you know, being a super independent guy, and he made his films independently. These were made by obviously Warner Brothers and a big, big studio. Right. But things like Pottermore, she carved out all all of these ancillary type of elements, which allowed her now to expand the franchise, her her world beyond just these eight films. Now it's the Wizarding World. So you go to the mm-hmm. park, it's not the Harry Potter park, it's the Wizarding World park. Ah. So she set it up to go back to whatever, what is it, the 1920s in the new film uh, for Fantastic Beasts. Um, so it's a prequel. And again, they're going prequel, you know, for the next series of films. She, did she write... Uh, Fantastic Beasts. Fantastic like Beasts was like a smaller book, like uh, that they put out in between the novels, which was just like a kind of a was creature it a story compendium. Or was it just describing the. It was describing creatures, kind of in an in-universe way, and Newt Scamander uh, was in it as like a, a beast, kind of um, you know, zoo, zoo, cri- uh, kind of like yeah. a cryptozoologist, I guess, because they're all yeah. fantastic it's monsters. The the, yeah. the book came out in two thousand and one for Fantastic Beasts, and it was in written between, by J.K. Rowling. Uh, it's short. It's what like fifty, sixty pages. One hundred twenty-eight pages. One hundred twenty-eight pages. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, there was the other book. That, she's done a couple. There was another book Beetle that came. Beetle, Beetle, Beetle Bard. Yeah. Um, now. And the movie was written, apparently, according to the website, Fantastic Beasts, the movie was written by J.K. Rowling. Oh, rad. Yeah. I think the only one that wasn't, the only movie that wasn't written, though, by Stephen Cloves was, was it Order of the Phoenix? Was it written written by Stephen Cloves? No, like he adapted all of them. So they they found a way from the books to the films to give us uh, a congruent, consistent voice by sticking with... Uh, the same screenwriter oh, and great. also the last four films which I think you know, the, the film the films kind of grow in maturity mm-hmm. um, with all with David Yates who's doing the fantastic piece mm-hmm. now um, do you think the films have evolved with the audience now Jimmy you're watching these for the first time and, and the immediate perception is they're kids movies like right. I'm watching uh the Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets, and there's 10 and 11-year-olds, kind of like Jake Lloyd and Phantom Menace as your protagonist. Um, only there's no Qui-Gons, really. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, it's kids. And d- was that like a deterrent? And then finally seeing this, did you find like by the time you got to the, like the seventh and eighth films, were you uh, looking at them differently or did you still oh, look at it as a, as a franchise that was you know more youthful? Well, um, it was interesting to to note the evolution and, and the age and the growth of all the, especially the younger actors, um, you know, sort of like watching that movie Boyhood, where you would see the same actor grow mm, up. And, yeah. and to me, I was, it, at times I was like, oh, that, that kid looks a little different than I thought he would. <laughs> um, but uh, for the most part, I thought they all aged pretty well, um, despite going through some of those uh, really awkward teenage years. I, I think they all uh, aged pretty well, and it was fun to watch. And like, like Boyhood, um, well, just while I'm, I'm thinking of this, there's a scene in Boyhood, 
Um, and you know how, how boyhood rolls. It's just sort of like just a bunch of memories all tacked together to sort of represent this guy's life as he's growing up. It was shot over the course of a decade. <laughs> Same actor. You see a kid from, you know, grow up as I think from like elementary school all the way through college or to, you know, his early his freshman year in college. So you, you watch this kid grow up. And uh, so th- that's similar to the Potter films. And in boyhood, there is a scene where he's dressed up as a wizard and he goes out with his family to get that Harry Potter book at midnight and he's walking and he's, you know, and to me, it almost chokes me up thinking about it because the guy is just, it has nothing to do with the movie, but it was just like the movie is made up of all of those memories that impact you and make you grow as a person. And I just thought it was so sweet that he was remembering going to get that Harry Potter book wasn't referred to before or after in the film, but there it mm-hmm. is representing an, a, just a huge moment in this kid's life. And so it's so nice when you're able to connect with your, your favorite uh, story or what, whatever, when, when you make that connection as a fan, I think there's something really special about it, but you know, back to watching the kids grow up, obviously the film series just gets darker and darker the older they get which is a relief to me because if it came out of the gate being really dark and they're all like 11 and 12 year olds i i'd be maybe a little upset about it but i was fully able to deal with it by the time the you know what started hitting the fan because i had the confidence in the characters i felt like the characters had grown enough to where they were able to to take these challenges on head on so when you see a kid getting tortured or even as as the case may be in this film in these films you you see kids getting killed mm-hmm. it's easier for me to handle as it happens later as opposed to it being dark right out of the gate so i i love the way the series evolves and it just keeps going down that vortex and the challenges and the dangers and the, the, the absolute danger becomes so clear by the end that I think as an audience member, I'm ready to handle it along with the characters. So um, it's, it's really interesting to watch this all evolve. A question I have for um, you, Kyle, because you're a total expert, is when... Does is this supposed to happen? Now you mentioned the new film is is set in the twenties. So when is this happening? When is Harry going to school? If we're looking at a real calendar, well, I, I, it's it's not current day. I mean, I think even cell phones weren't. Um, it's it's the late is it the late eighties or early early nineties something like that, or yeah, is it the nineties? Right. It's the nineties, uh, I believe. Mid nineties, yeah. Mid nineties, okay. and it, and it goes along with it because cell phones weren't really um, a part of it. So it's a it is in a sense a period thing. Yeah, um, yeah. Fantastic Beasts uh, takes place in nineteen twenty six, and the, the Harry Potter films. When the, the first one is it set in like nineteen ninety six? That would seem right because uh, that's when she was that. writing the first book, wasn't it? During the nineties. Yeah. Yeah, I think she, you know she wrote a lot of these out of a out of her home or in a little coffee shop up in. Uh, Scotland, um, and you can feel the influence of what she's writing, um, you know, coming through in it all. Um, here's a question. 
you know, for me, like this is something I fully haven't wrapped my head around, and maybe you know, you guys have different interpretations. But there's a key scene early on in Sorcerer's Stone with the snake at the zoo, and Harry makes the glass disappear without wand or the knowledge of magic. He's not even really um, indoctrinated into it or aware of this world of magic and wizards, but he does so as if it's an innate ability. Um, what do you think this mean? What does it mean to be a wizard in this world, and what does the wizard bloodline really offer versus? Versus being a muggle. Like, our magical powers and the way they're portrayed consistent throughout the franchise. Because here we are in a very early scene, and he, and, um, you know, uh, Dudley's been, been difficult with him, and he's pressed against the glass, and poof, the glass disappears. The snake comes out. It's our first uh, introduction to Parseltongue. And, um, you know, Harry's kind of fused legacy with snakes and um, Slytherin and Voldemort. Uh, but like I said, there's no wand here. And does that stick out when you go back and watch all the films um, as to how he's doing stuff like this without knowledge of it? It's almost like it's tapping into the force. Mm-hmm. Um, was that weird to you guys? I'm still trying to wrap my head around it because I don't know if it's ever been. And I'm forgetting how they explained it in the book because I have not gone back to read the book um, in quite a, quite a little bit of time. Well, it's kind of similar to, to that flashback they have in the later film where they show young Snape with young Lily Potter. And it seems like she has these skills, you know, she's learning how to use the magic and it's just kind of coming to her naturally. And it, it sort of manifests itself in weird ways. And that's what was happening with Harry. He didn't even know what he was doing, but it was just the So nature. it's more about the bloodline. I think yeah, you I, think that you're innately a wizard. That's what makes you different from... There's magic to well, magic potential. Uh, oh, Obviously, but, Muggle but versus Mudblood versus Pureborn. I mean, frankly, also if you got like a ten year old, however old he is, and a snake starts talking to you for the first time, you're not going to be cool with it. You're going to be kind of surprised <laughs> and shocked. You're going to be kind of like, "What's going on here?" Let alone a glass disappearing. Mm-hmm. However, there was a bit of dialogue. Now that I'm thinking about it, because I was originally going to debunk it and be like, "Oh, well, this doesn't make any damn sense." But isn't there a line where that? That like that shitty uncle is like in no funny business or whatever, mm-hmm. almost implying that Harry has somehow accidentally caused magic things to happen and caused trouble he before. Has, yeah, he, he, he has, has and, and <clears throat> didn't a bunch of things happen. But is that that something that all these kids can do, or is this uh, intrinsic? No, I think all the kids can to do. Harry being the chosen one. That's why they're accepted uh, at Hogwarts, maybe because they accidentally make. But you, you said the scene happen. with Lily and with Snape, and they're by that point they're already at school. They're students. They're aware of their abilities, and they've tapped into it. Um, yeah, so I guess it's an innate thing. I mean, it's something that that doesn't really get explored again in the subsequent movies because we're in the wizarding world, and then there's a world of people without magic. Um, well, I think most kids grow up knowing that they are magic, right? Because they have wizard parents. So, but then you just, have the girls like Hermione is. Oh uh, yeah, is not. Of well, maybe that and like he, he he just thought he was a weird kid. So maybe and he knew that he had like weird things happen to him. So I think it was just about intention. Like he was like, oh, I really like I'm so mad at Dudley, and then he's not aware of his own power, and then that you know. It's the power of their mind. Here's yeah. something then. Uh, what about, okay, so Hermione is a normal normal girl, right? Mm-hmm. Her parents are normal human beings. Yep. And she's all of a sudden got these witch powers. A, how did they not just burn her right away? Or B, <laughs> how did, like, 
if if Hogwarts is such a secret, like the whole idea of magic being not real and a secret society, how do her parents figure out about Hogwarts to enroll her or Did submit they send her? her a it was letter. before social media, dude. They sent her a letter and they're like, <laughs> this is why your kid is like this. We have a school for for kids like this. But if you don't know about it, wouldn't you think you're being like punked? Yeah. No, they know that their kid is doing weird, cool stuff, and then they're like, "Oh, this is it." It's like it's like Xavier School for Mutants. It's yeah, like when the Jedi come kid. to take your child because they demonstrate strange abilities. Yeah, yeah. Um, I get. She it. Just like, had good parents like who Luke, embraced it, and then were like, "Yes." Luke Skywalker, very similar to Harry Potter. I mean, he grew up with innate abilities. Um, mm-hmm. He didn't know them. He couldn't put his finger on what they were. He had people shielding him from knowing about his the greater truth to who he was, um, an aunt and an uncle. Um, there are a lot of similarities with, obviously, Star Wars being the most famous modern myth. Um, Paul, does this franchise borrow elements from other myths, modern tales? And I, I'm talking about Star Wars, but you have things like the prophecy, a chosen one. That's something else that's, mm. that's big in Star Wars, but it's big in, in all types of mythology. Um, is it almost like... Um, just accepted that you have to go back to Joseph Campbell and you have to borrow from these classic mm-hmm. things. Um, what, do you, what do you think? I mean, obviously, just a few examples right there. I mean, it's yeah. so tangibly Star well, Wars. I mean, I, I kind of feel as though, I mean, I mean, to, to flashback slightly to to what you were, you know your 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 questions about J.K. You know, I kind of feel as though she most definitely was kind of drawing upon the whole kind of hero's journey thing very consciously. And you, you can tell that she was pulling from everywhere and had the smarts to understand that that was a good idea, you know, based upon things like Star Wars and other success stories that have, have used that kind of a model. So I think, I think Harry Potter is full of, of those kind of things. And it, to me, it always feels like it's the second most successful attempt to kind of adapting kind of Campbell's teachings into a movie in a quite kind of direct way. I mean, you know, there, there are like, think there are websites out there, aren't there, that kind of just compare Star Wars and, and Harry Potter quite literally, you know, and, and, and you can almost tell the entire story from start to finish and, and not tell which story they're talking about. If you just kind of, wow. you know, say kind of an like orphaned kid, you know, and uh, even Voldemort's his, and, his and identity as a villain is so fused to Harry Potter's, um, there's, I mean, there's. Wait, Voldemort to Star Wars or Voldemort, Voldemort to Harry Potter, and the way like Luke and Vader. There's, yeah. there's like how yeah. close oh, they yeah. are. There's yeah, these yeah, discoveries yeah. to it. Um, not that they're related, but that they're. Yeah, and they're, if you remember, just being oh, you're an obstacle in my way to do my plan. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Voldemort and uh, there's pieces of like him in Harry Potter. There's his wand. They almost have like brother sibling wands. And that's a big mm-hmm. thing they set up in this uh, first film when yeah. he goes to get his wand. Mm-hmm. He lets him know that the only other person has that same um, element is he who shall not be named. And that's yeah. a big part of uh, Deathly Hallows. Yeah. Especially that, that scene, um, that scene in this uh, Sorcerer's Stone where, or even in the, you know, very, it mirrors the scene in Star Wars, a new hope where Darth Vader was hiding on the side of a dude's head. What? <laughs> I'm kidding. I think I think like you're asking about whether or not JK was present and stuff like that. And I think JK was yeah. much more she was much more present during pre production. And on, on actual on the actual set she very rarely kinda of came in when they were actually shooting. She'd be there occasionally for, you know, scenes that were important to her and what have you, but generally she was quite quite hands off, you know. She sort of wow. but whenever she did come in, you could tell that, you know, having been on numerous sets where the writers do turn up, I mean I remember working on the Golden Compass when uh, Pullman showed up, and you know people 
people barely knew who he was and, and working on the colour of magic, magic when Pratchett turned up and people were just kind of, you know, gently acknowledging him. But when JK showed, showed up on Harry Potter, everybody, you know, knew who she was. Everybody treated her with respect. So she obviously was an enormous deal to everybody on the production and it was a very unusual setup. You could tell that people, you know, acknowledged that she was calling yeah. the shots on some mm-hmm. very significant level. But for me, I think what seemed to be more important to JK than than the hero's journey and all those aspects that I think were probably important to her when she was writing the book, but not, you know, that, that work had kind of been done by the time the movies were kind of going into production. So I think her focus became more about culture. You know, I mean, I remember, I know Carl, we, we've talked about this before in that I, th- I think that, that, you know, for, for British people, like witchcraft is a very kind of different thing to, um, you know, the, the, the kind of general, um, you know, kind of way that people sort of perceive it outside of uh, Europe, you know, in the, in the witchcraft is almost like kind of it's in our history you know we we all the school kids you know we went to places like Pendle and we'd see places where we knew there were witch trials and stuff like that and it's a very kind of it's almost orthodoxy you know we were a pagan community right up until the you know the invasions of the the Normans and stuff like that so we're, we're very much a kind of aware of her own kind of tree hugging past you know and um so i think for for her i think what she was trying to do was kind of like encapsulate that kind of like ancient british kind of feel you know and i think that's that's where she's pulling from as much as anything she's pulling from kind of you know like mythologies for sure but she's she's also just kind of like i think she's just nodding to a lot of different aspects of british culture so i think when she was on set that's what she was really bothered about she was like okay this bookshop needs to feel like all these kind of curiosity bookshops that we get in uh in Wales, you know, and she wanted, you know, certain things to look exactly like, you know, her her kind of what she was picturing. So I think I think when it when it came to the movies, she was all about how it looked rather than the subtext and the and the, and the story. I think she kind of felt like she'd already kind of made sure that the script was okay. And so when it came, she to helped the shoot, cast. I mean, she had a say in who these kids were going to be. And like, there's some yeah. the 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 buildings are just a little crooked or there's a forced oh, perspective. It's, it's mildly reminiscent of like what Tim Burton was doing production design. Um, and, and I think there's this beautiful fusion of the real world and organic, but then letting the wizard world just be a little off. Like physics doesn't apply to everything yeah. you're seeing. There's a magical element maybe to construction. I mean, just take for one example, the, um, I mean, we don't see it in the first film, but take, um, you know, Ron's house yeah, yeah. and the Weasley's homestead and, right. and this this almost tall, lopsided building. You get a much better sense of it as the movies go on until it sadly burns down in, in Half-Blood Prince. Oh, sad. But that was, um, you know, just these really unique structures, Gringotts, um, the, um, oh, all the okay. storefronts. And, it, I mean, it feels like you're wandering around London, but everything's so heightened and pushed. So huh? I can imagine her walking onto the set and seeing this production design and being like, all right, oh. we're... We're I good. The, um, the, the most beautiful set I've ever been on in my life, and I've been on a lot, was definitely Diagon Alley. I think I think it just had a richness oh, to so it cool. that you can't imagine. I mean, like I've seen the recreation because when Leavesden was bought out by Warner's after they finished the the Harry Potter movies, movies and they they built the visitor centre and what have you, it, it, it'd be easy to assume that what you're getting in there is just a straightforward kind of representation of what was you know what we saw on set. But it actually changed quite a bit. You know, they they opened up a little, you know, Diagon Alley, so it, it's it's more kind of, um, you know, visitor friendly. But but the actual set itself uh, felt much more kind of unstable, much much crookeder, and and uh, the the actual interiors of the shops were quite amazing in, in terms of a lot of them had windows that had 
special glass in so you got that kind of it had like an amplifying effect so when you look through the window it looked enormous and then if you opened the door and went in all of a sudden it's a much smaller kind of environment than you realize and the, the actual so bookshop cool. when you when you walked just inside the door there's you know full-size books on the windowsill but you go back 10 foot and the whole the whole set is false perspective so at the very back of the shop you've got these tiny little steps with tiny little books on them you know so they really made the most of the environment. I mean, it was a huge environment as it was, but then, but then they did all this extra stuff to kind of, like, you know, uh, convince you that it was, it was even deeper and even bigger. And if you look really closely at a lot of the set dressing, it's quite incredible what they, what they did because they, they did things like they wouldn't just paint a, a shop sign; they'd paint a sign, then they'd sand it off, and then they'd paint another sign like somebody had, you know, bought the place and it, it now had new owners. renamed it. No and then way. They'd, they'd, it gives it the layers of history. Yeah, they they, they really put the, so the history cool. into it, you know. And I think if you if you spent enough time on that set, it, it just it was so hard not to be. Totally well, that's why people want to keep going back to this world. That's why people want to go back to the books. Mm. They're so immersive. That's why people want to go visit the theme park. Yeah. That's why people are excited about it. That's the same thing that you know. Star Wars has these layers to it. Harry Potter obviously has these layers. That's that's one of the elements of success. Um, you know, in a story sense, you have the Sorting Hat. You know, it's very conflicted when it's placed upon Harry's head, but it ultimately places him in Gryffindor, even though it debated Slytherin. Uh, what do you think its purpose uh, for putting him in Gryffindor? Was and uh, by doing so, what are the challenges Harry faces? I mean, it's probably very uh, purposeful. Uh, but what do you think, Georgie? By 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 sticking like, him in Gryffindor over Slytherin? I think that Slytherin came from his tie with Voldemort, but he was really just a Gryffindor. So he, the Sorting Hat, considered Slytherin, and then Harry was like, "No," and they let's you know. Do you think but, it's like that? It that. He, it knew that you know Harry Potter's strength comes from friends, and he was going to. Is it about who you're with, or how you're placed, or? Because here's another big question for me. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a question for you guys. Do you think that Harry Potter has it easy in these films? Is there too much help from outside people, or is that what? precisely the point? Uh, yeah, look. Let's look. No, he okay. could have done it without. Of There's his, without Fox. His he gets Godric Gryffindor's sword. Um, like that's what I mean. He couldn't do he any Ron of this. And, Hermione. and is he that has... part of the reason he's placed into Gryffindor by placing him? Is it like a fateful thing, knowing he's going to need friends, and that love and friendship are going to be the things I that are going to help him yeah. do what he needs to do? Or is that by chance that it's no? He couldn't have. So done you think it. Sorting Hat is uh, almost? Um, I think the precognitive in that way. Yes. knows the Sorting Hat because the, the Hermione and Ron and Harry they all have different strengths. It's like when you you know it's like a it's like a heist movie where they're like we need the tech guy we need the mm-hmm. the muscle we need the master of disguise and the Sorting Hat knew that if he put each of them individually in the houses that they should go to, you know, the Hufflepuff or Gryffindor or Slytherin, like their if if the Sorting Hat just took their characteristics and put them in their the house that is synonymous with those characteristics. They wouldn't grow as individuals or, or or friends. So he took a Slytherin, and instead of putting Harry with the Slytherin, which he should have been, he put them in with Ron, who should have been somewhere else, and, and Hermione, who should have been somewhere else, because together they latched on each other's strengths and weaknesses and helped them uh, better off as as uh, as children as as a school. She keeps I mean, exploring maybe. that too in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child with Harry Potter's son. She place it how mm-hmm. she places him, why she places him. It, it's a challenge. Then that ultimately it wouldn't have happened. Things wouldn't have gotten resolved the way they 
would have and history wouldn't unfold the way it's going to unless he's placed the way it does and it challenges him in a certain way. And part of it is that's the story. You need story to have conflict or else it doesn't propel forward. Um, but part of it is, you know, fate and design. Um, here's another big uh, element here. Uh, the Dursleys. Do you think they evolved well throughout these these films or or uh, overall and through these first two films? What do you think? Are they so one note? Like for me, they've always been a bit one note, but I do think they ended up evolving to a point where I really understood and liked them more. But mm. what do you think about the Dursleys? Anybody out there want to challenge? Them? I don't know. I didn't. I didn't take note of any evolutionary, and I was constantly scratching my head as to why. Harry continues to return to their care. Me too. I mean, it, it just well, he's protected there on at their house. He didn't know that though. Isn't he, he protected he at know, their house yes, until a certain he age? He didn't know that until later. He didn't on. know that, but the Dursleys uh, obviously it's his mother's the, sister. Yeah, there's this familial. The thing Dursleys there. knew, and I think, and I think. I didn't think he had anywhere else to go, though. But I think there is there's a there's a protection on the house, so he's safe there I, from I, anyone getting to him. But Jimmy, you're saying why would he keep going back? Well, I, you know what I if there's so many I enjoyed it because to me it was one of those essential elements, much like how at the beginning of a Bond film he always walks into Q's office and gets his balls busted. You know, I mean it's <laughs> one of those things that just keeps recurring throughout the uh, series. And so when each film, or not each film, but when when most of the films it's- opened up with those sequences, with Harry going back and forth with those those jerk bags, it was mm-hmm. always just like really, it was almost like comfort food to me. I'm like, okay, here we go. Here's another Harry Potter film. Let's get it rolling. It's, you know, then, beginning with the, yeah. the traditional staples of, of the film. And there, there are a few others throughout, but that that's a big one. And also I consider, you know, when they gather together in that big dining hall at the school, that's another one of those mm-hmm. staples where it just is like, okay, this is a Harry Potter film. They're particularly cruel, almost like... Um, you know, Cinderella's. Yeah. I, I think that's <laughs> what was great about it, though, is like he had such a contrast between like being at school and where he belonged and then being like an outcast. That he doesn't being, belong in this yeah, in so this not, world and he's exciting, out of place it, with his identity. Yeah. yeah. To, to, it, is a, it is a great contrast. And yes. he gets this warmth there. Um, now here's another thing. These films are all there's there's always a mystery element to these movies. Uh, Sorcerer's Stone. It's a it's a big part of it. Um, yeah, all the emphasis is on Snape, but it's really somebody else. Uh, Chamber of Secrets is probably the most whodunit of the series. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's why. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm just thinking this now. Maybe it's why people consider it the weakest of the eight films. Uh, it's probably the most faithful. To the book adaptation of that's any of the my, films, yeah, where they tried to they, that's they tried to it was get the everything book, so they. But it's also the longest film. I think it's over 160 right. minutes, and they tried to get really? every element of the book in there. Um, uh, but it is the most, as Razzle put it, uh, Hardy Boys. Um, yeah, it's very it's very um, uh, procedural in the sense that it's it's uh, it's got the same it's got the same beats as a Hardy Boys book mm-hmm. or uh, if you remember the I mean Georgie before her time uh, there was the Hardy Boys show that on the the wonderful world of Disney or whatever where you have uh, your your you get the first plot points you get you get um, seeds of what the mystery is going to be and, and what's happening uh, then you get taken in a different direction and then you're much like procedurals on TV you get uh, the option and the thought that someone is bad like Snape, but they end up turning to be 
a uh, um, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, red herring, a red herring, or something yeah. where it's not the right direction. It, it leads you to think they're going to be the bad guy um, multiple times, and, and even stepping back and looking at the series as a whole, they continue to beat that. That Snape's the bad guy, but he ends up being it, good guy the whole time. But they do go somewhere with it, which is but very But they do finally go somewhere with it. Whereas Was that uh, always her plan? Say that again? Do you think that was always her plan? I don't think so. I think it was like the George Lucas or plan. Is that like I, think it's, it's, I think they say it's a plan, but I will say, though, the whole snake thing, I think, could have been a major plan. Because from the get-go, he can talk to snakes, and then all of a sudden snakes come back later and on. Snape being so close to snake. I think yeah. she set up a lot of things in the wordplay. Um, obviously Snape and Quirrell in this yeah. first film. Um, and then in the second film, it's, you know, Gilderoy Lockhart. And again, there's emphasis on Snape and where this, where this, uh, artifact or this old diary came from ultimately being a, a Horcrux, mm-hmm. even the idea of Horcruxes, uh, do you guys, Jimmy, having watched all these films together now, yeah. it builds up to this, this, uh, pinnacle where it's all about collecting the Horcruxes, which are fragments of his soul, um, and destroying them. Yes. And do you feel like that was, again, an afterthought? Or do you think that was something? Me, I think it's a little bit after that because it all got jammed into one book. Mm-hmm. But I read it as books. Do you watching it as films feel like it was an organic build and evolution? Or did it come later? It's like, oh, we need a conflict for book seven or films seven and eight. What is it going to be? Well, one thing I like about this series is how things gradually get revealed. And you learn through the character's experience. You're never like several steps ahead of the characters. You're with them along the journey. And so they're they're finding things, and you're like, what the hell is that? And then there's no explanation for it. Well, obviously, because the characters themselves have no explanation for mm-hmm. it. So Harry finally, you know, gets the knowledge of the of these this this physical representation of of Voldemort's soul or his evil or whatever it is. And uh, it has to destroy it. So it makes me think of instantly Lord of the Rings, of course. You know, you destroy the power, destroy the ring. And that's kind of the vibe I was getting from it all along. So it almost felt a little derivative. And, um, you know, it's what you call the MacGuffin, of course. They're going after these things. You care about the characters, but you don't really care what they're chasing. You just want to see them succeed. Um, so that's just, it just felt more like a device. And, um, you know, I, I have to admit that that the the, the first part of uh, Deathly Hollows, it, it seemed like in the middle there was really dragging to me, and uh, I, I wish it would have just gotten along around. with it. And I, I kept thinking to myself, "Well, wouldn't this be interesting if it was one movie instead of two parts?" Um, but there's a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, that was the thing when you yeah, when yeah, I yeah, first yeah, read I mean, the book. I, I was thinking it was that taking as well, a long but, time yeah, to collect from place to place and looking for clues. And hor- Horcruxes, like I said, they are in the movies earlier I mean, but we don't know what that is right. but we do see this with this diary and then when he when he stabs the the tooth through it and he destroys the diary he's killed part of uh, Tom Riddle you know Voldemort's soul one of the fragments and um, I, I, I just don't know if that was like hindsight appropriating it oh that there's a horcrux there's one off the list you know let me ask like you, she had let me ask you the, can Harry himself be considered a horcrux because he had that part of Voldemort in him, and he, he had to die essentially to yeah, defeat the Dark Lord. Yeah, he was yeah. Part crux. of him when he did that thing, part of him was placed in Harry Potter. So, what do you yeah. think? I and mean, is he a Horcrux himself? He is a Horcrux. Yeah, I thought that was. What do you think, Paul? 
Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of, I've never really looked at it that way. I think, I think, I think what, what did just occur to me then when you were talking about, you know, the feeling of certain, certain books kind of dragging and stuff. Something I feel I should mention is I, th- I think that the, the directors made a big difference to how this material felt as you went along. And I kind of feel like I, I can't really speak to, you know, whether or not, a book dragged or a book, you know, maybe you kind of like overlabored a point or kind of like squeezed a point in. But I, I kind of feel as though like Chris Columbus's approach to, you know, to the whole kind of thing felt very kind of um, almost kind of like very minimalist and very kind of like, let's speed things along. But then it was safe. Yeah. You know what I mean, because then, also you're, then, you're launching a big franchise. Yeah. But then David Heyman was just, he was a total breath of fresh air. He was a lovely, lovely guy. And and you could tell that he he was he he was kind of he was one of those guys. Where, sorry, David Yates. Sorry, he was one of those guys where you kind of like feel like he's so attentive to absolutely every single detail. And it turned out that he started out as a journalist, and so he was one of these kind of people. That I think he was really kind of meticulous about everything, and he wanted to get his hands on everything. So I think even if you know, even if, uh, you know, uh, something was kind of like very mildly developed, I, f- I felt as though he was the kind of director who was going to just really kind of belabor a thing almost, but in a good way, you know, he was really going to like keen to explore every single detail. So it didn't surprise me at all that, you know, one book turned into two and, and you know, I look at what David Yates did later on. It's kind of like when Irvin mm. Kirshner stepped into empire strikes back, he took yeah. what, what had been established and he, mm. and he elevated it like half blood Prince. Um, it, you know, looking back is probably the finest achievement of them all and the hardest yeah. to actually direct because of the mm. unique, it's the funniest of the movies. It's also almost the darkest. It's almost like the mm. empire strikes back with, with, with like the death of Dumbledore and what happens with Snape and all these dark revelations, but yeah. it's also the warmest. It's probably the, the kids are at their finest in terms of acting mm. like the details and nuance and the flirtation and the hormones, but also the comedy. <laughs> and it's interesting to see that evolve from where Columbus started. And I think mm. the challenge with him was he probably had a studio breathing down his neck. He's, there's a huge investment here. Oh, yeah. uh, you have to launch a franchise mm. and you have to, there's all this money riding on it. And we mm. paid a lot for these books. We're going to do all these other movies. Um, I, but going back to Harry Potter is, is a, a horcrux. I mean, I, th- I think he's, that's, part of his Voldemort got fragmented off when he attacked his parents. And that's what the scar is. That visual indication, I think of that, um, and his inability to probably kill himself there because part of the Horcrux is in him after it got split and attached to him. I guess I don't know exactly the, the mechanics of the Horcruxing, how, how, how you Horcrux it up. Um, (laughs) I did like the explanation later when we got to it um, in book six uh, with Slughorn, who's also a wonderful character, and you finally get this reveal of Horcruxes and how he explains to, you know, he has that conversation with Tom Riddle uh, where it's, oh, just hypothetical, just in theory, right? We're not going to really do this. And he tells him about it. And you go back and you see in Chamber of Secrets that he actually did that way back then, probably shortly after I had the conversation with. you know, with Slughorn as his professor, and there's the first, you know, creation. I, I think that's the first Horcrux being created in Chamber of Secrets. It's also the first one being destroyed since it's back when he was a student before he became like a menacing uh, killer. Um, here's something I, that's important. The music of John Williams. Yeah. Let's, well, can we, while we were talking about okay, the, the Columbus movies real quick, um, comparatively, uh, I, I, 
I personally, I, I definitely, I think that the Columbus movies had to me, they gave me more of the world. They gave me the like Hogwarts and the Columbus movies seemed cooler True. and like but more the, magical. You can't keep showing the world off to people, even though you have to do a little bit to reestablish. Yeah. Like in in book in, in the seventh film, they're talking about Polyjuice Potion. By then, we've yeah. seen it many times, but they have yeah. to recap it. But when you first experience it in a Columbus film, it's like a, it's like a the whole idea. It's bigger. That's bigger um, than what it is. Yeah. But because it's it's all old hat in a way. So Columbus. He he almost had to showcase he build the these world amazing more, worlds, yeah. So then we could then just be immersed in it in future yeah. films without stopping to take it all in. Um, though there's still these beautiful moments throughout, but it's less in a grandiose way. We're going to show off visual effects or something, yeah. like especially with the Yates films. The or the effects are much more organic, and I think Azkaban was really where it started mm. to like let's get a more grounded filmic handheld style and let it evolve. Um, but because the Chris Columbus movies are much more classically filmed, even yeah. down to classic posters, they have Drew Struz and posters. Yeah. You go into John Williams for your music, which is the most, um, I mean, you, can you think of Star Wars without John I've, Williams? Can you think of Indiana Jones, a, Jaws, I've, I've or Jurassic a, Park? Sorry, Carl. I've, I've got go a, a, a John Williams story to tell you that was, mm. folks will probably find interesting, which was when, when we were shooting um, Philosopher's Stone, uh, it was... We were quite a way into it. We'd, been, we'd all been on set for a while and all the young actors were kind of getting comfortable with what they were doing and, and everything was constructed and all the, you know, the big stuff was, was dealt with. And then um, one day one of the ADs came in and sort of with a, with a surprise and gathered everybody together and took us all in a tent, basically sort of said that they had something to show everybody. And what it was was the very first... Um, reel of William's music that they'd, they'd got for, for uh, Harry Potter. So nobody'd heard the theme yet, oh uh, including um, Chris. So everybody kind of got to hear the music for the very first time all together in, in a tent. So it was a wild experience because everybody just went crazy. Because cool. you, could, you could tell immediately That's it was cool. one of those themes like Superman yeah. or Star Wars. Or, uh -huh. The music changed you know, everything. And obviously he's not there throughout. Like, like Star Wars has John Williams for every film. Um, and they've gone through several composers with Harry Potter. Um, these films are blessed with John Williams music throughout. Obviously, they're films that they use the themes, the key themes, the anchoring. They can go back to what John Williams did. Um, but do you what, what do you think this, these would be like without the magic of John Williams? Obviously, we can talk for days about the influence we had on I think the, the other franchise. The only thing I can say is that you know over the over the course of you know shooting these things, I think there are there are a handful of moments that felt like truly magical and like truly kind of special moments where you felt like the whole film unit were, were really kind of feel like aware of the fact that they were doing something special that was going to last and and that that would have a cultural impact beyond the books and and all that you know and i think that that john williams just has from my point of view has something unique that brought that on that day you know half the cast were crying and you know oh, everybody wow. was just so moved by so cool. they could just tell that this was you know, this was one of those scores that was that was going to be around for a long, long time. You know, so I think there's something about Williams that I think. I, I mean, I, I just think he's one of a kind. And although you know, like I, I, you know, I love all kinds of kind of composers. I think it, there really is nobody like John Williams, is there? I think he's he's mm -hmm. unique. I think he's he's just got that something special that that Star Wars oxygen. You know, he's he's that guy. <laughs> he's irreplaceable. So cool.
<laughs> now, Columbus's films, uh, these first two that we're talking about, are I wouldn't say they're widely dismissed, but they're not looked upon as favorably as other installments like Azkaban or some of the later ones. Um, and you know, they maybe didn't attract the adults like. Jimmy, you said, you know, you weren't pulled into it. Mm. You weren't of the age. Um, although they're very adored by diehards. Personally, I love them. Uh, what I love about Harry Potter movies is I could live in them. I, wanna, I want to eat at the feast. I want mm. to um, live in... You want to uh, eat, eat at one of those giant... I want to live giant, in serious uh, blacks. Uh, you want to eat in the cafeteria apartment. tables with all those candles dripping on you from the... Like, where did all, who cleaned up <laughs> no, all that wax? Like, it doesn't drip on you. <laughs> like, do you no. know how many burns Razzle, those kids would have? That is an endless buffet. Yeah, but those candles are just flown above like dripping wax. They're not dripping. They're not dripping. And then you get a starscape above your head, and then they're bringing out pumpkin juice, and then you're eating like Yorkshire pudding and, and prime rib and Do you ever and all stop types of eating. Yeah. So, is, do you think it's the young leads that hold us back, Georgie? Is that maybe why people adults weren't pulled into it because they're you're looking at these ten year old protagonists? Or do you view all the films equally? You know, you're of a generation, you grew up with these. Did you ever feel there was uh, like a ranking to them or that there was this stigma, oh, those two Columbus movies? No, not at all. I mean, I knew which books were my favorite, like... Which is your favorite Prisoner of Azkaban. Okay, and you love time travel then. You're big term... No. And I love Sirius Black. (laughs) Oh, he's the coolest. Rousel's favorite, little known fact, is Dobby. His favorite book is Harry Potter and the Soggy Biscuit. Is my Rousel's name is Dobby. Book. Give me some clothes, Harry. My name is Dobby. Whoa, <laughs> what was me? Did my you name cry? Is Dobby. Did you cry when Dobby died? Wrong? Dobby is the is some people would say the Jar Jar of the Harry Potter universe. <laughs> That's yeah, cool. I would yes, love to see Dobby's a little bitch, bro. I would love to see a buddy cop film with the two of them. And Fuck you know Dobby, what? dude. That's I love Dobby. Hey, and I love Jar Jar hey, too. Hey, Harry Potter, I'm gonna I'm gonna get you in trouble by throwing. This cake I know what I do. I go around. Dobby was trying to protect him, Razzle. Come do you on. You know what I do? I go to my house and, I, and I'll just walk by, I'll throw a sock on my dog. I'm like, you're free. I always yeah. throw socks on people. I tell them they're free. Oh my gosh. I love Dobby. I love. I also. You know, if I was Harry Potter and Dobby I have some was getting in trouble, when, I my, when my niece comes to visit, you know, she just turned like 17, but she was coming for a while. She was younger and she'd stay with us. And I'd be like, you're a house elf now. You have to help us with the chores. You yeah. do whatever I tell you. Mm-hmm. And if you're there, you're my house elf, you know? So um, it's enough. a cool. It's a cool job. And then Harry Potter gave him a socket in. I would have just been like, yo, uh, Lucius Dobby was visiting me a couple weeks ago and he was doing some bad things. Dobby puts that sock him? on the doorknob. Dobby's getting Dobby's put, with Dobby's, other Dobby's, Dobby's, Dobby's going to the room of uh, whatever that's requirement. called. Requirement. And putting the sock on the door <laughs> with some other house elves. I'm going to throw up. I don't want to think about Dobby's I love creature. Feet. I love house elves. And Dobby is cool. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Razzle hates Davi. Uh, so, uh, what about you, uh, Paul or Jimmy? You know, you guys obviously, um, you know, weren't kids when these came out. Yeah. Um, Star Wars was your franchise, um, but do you think it's because there were child protagonists that pushed you back? It's the same thing with Anakin Skywalker and Jake Lloyd. A lot of people are like, "Fuck this kid! Mm-hmm. Fuck this stupid mannequin!" Mm-hmm. People hated him, and it was because they expected Star Wars to have matured with them. Oh, well, I'm 28, and I want the movie to be R-rated, and I want <laughs> slow motion effects like Matrix, and they put all these expectations on it, and here they're telling a chapter one, and it can't be darker or scarier, just like the prequels couldn't be more intense than Empire Strikes Back. Um, but do you think it's the kid stigma, or what is it that maybe didn't have adults connect with it? Yeah, ask Jimmy because Jimmy didn't watch. Well, I'll them tell you. You know recently. what the thing is? Is um, 
I believe it's because of the fact that the books were published by Scholastic here in the States. And knowing that, having that knowledge, I just immediately wrote off Harry Potter as a kiddie series. I didn't realize it had such a, a rich mythology to it and the world building was so enormous and that it went so dark and could appeal yeah, to adults. So much more. Yeah. So I think it's also my my sister in law was the first person who really got me into it because I was aware of it and I was like, Oh, this is cool, I want to read it. And she she was um close to my age, maybe a few she's a few years older, and it was around the holidays, and she was obsessed with it. She's like, How have you not read this? She yeah. like literally threw it at me. She's like, Go read this book right now. It's incredible. You're gonna flip out. And I was like, And then he was like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm gonna go <laughs> clean some walls. And I did. And I was like, You know what? You're right. And shortly later, I was playing like the Harry Potter Uno with the with the gnomes. And I I, 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 I became a Harry Potter fanatic. So, but, um, but it is. It's it did feel like a kid imprint. thing. It, you're right. Scholastic, young reader. That's the thing. Now, young reader up. books are all romantic. Graders. I really did. Because those were the books I got in the fourth grade. They would come, we, we would have these book orders at school, and we would get all these Scholastic books. I didn't think that Scholastic could possibly publish something that would appeal to me as a 30-something-year-old uh, adult when the first uh, film came out. So, yeah, that's, that's okay. probably well, the main thing that kept me away. It wasn't the kid actors. It was just the idea that it was created for children. This this kind of puts a spin on things because I, I you know back back when you know the, the the books were first kind of going crazy over here. Oddly enough, like when as I as I started to work on the movies, it was actually my mum who was like a super enthusiastic about the books, and she was in her eighties, so she was she was like, oh, fantastic! You're going to be working on Harry Potter. They're so popular and the good books, and and you know, so it just shows you that it still had appeal. But I think my mum quite yeah. liked the idea of the the way that it, it just you know it made the uncool kids the cool kids you know the ginger kid and the kid with the glasses and you know it made them the it's heroes so and so i think she quite liked just that idea that it was going to make nice kids you know who front published and it in and the uk was so, it a kids publisher in the uk who put the books uh, out did it have that stigma you know, i'm not even sure i don't know i don't think so i don't, I don't, I don't think, think so right I, I think it was just you know i mean it was understood it was a kid's book but i mean it was so widely read i mean you couldn't get on a tube tube station in the early two in the early noughties without seeing like an adult reading harry potter so i mean it was and it was, and it was an english thing first it didn't get released uh at the mm. same time here because they changed the title but then you know uh, so we, right we have a, a long few months. legacy of like Enid Blyton and, you know, children's books that are still kind of, you know, and the Narnia Chronicles and, and The Hobbit and things like that. You know, like it's just accepted that these children children's books can be entertaining for adults. So I think I think because of the genre in part, because it's kind of like fantasy and it almost feels like a book that was written in the 40s. You know, like yeah, just there's something of, classic about it, which is why I do like the Columbus films. I feel like they paid homage to that, and they yeah, and they referenced it. But to, they knew that in order for it to grow, they'd have to push beyond it. They'd have to modernize it. Pretty mm. soon, you see the kids wearing like All Saints clothes and dressing like they're in Mumford and Sons, <laughs> and like it becomes very modern, well, look, was, and it like has a, to. There was a BBC adaption of the Narnia books, right? That I always think is a good case in point, in that the children in that were what we call over here BBC children, which are like the the, the kind of kids you don't get in the real world. Now they're all like, "Oh, mother, may I have another tea? Would you pass me a biscuit, please?" <laughs> yeah, like, we, we, and they're all they're all largely like that in here even in the 1920s. You know, they didn't exist. Only BBC TV programs. And, uh, they're in like, school robes. It's yeah, it's yeah. like the uh, it's the kids from uh, Miss uh, Poppins, Mary Poppins. Yeah, it's yeah like exactly. Those little guys. They're oh, the, are you troublemakers? Or the you kids from like the ring that, 
Yeah. Or, the, or the the kids from like The Ring or The Shining that yeah. would freak you out if you if you seen them following you. Yeah, home. these weren't like the kids in Goonies. You know what I mean? They're, um, they're not that irreverent. I do. I, I am curious since we were talking about the the transition of starting as as kids books and ending in more adult books uh, with Georgie. Since you you know you're fairly younger than us all, and you grew up, you actually did grow up with the books and the films. Uh, what what are your thoughts on that? As far as like the the transition of uh, the books and the films. Um, evolving as you know, as the kids get older, and evolving into more adult-themed storylines. Um, I guess I didn't even look at it like that because I was evolving with it. So I just, you know, I watched the first movie and I was like, "Oh, this is awesome!" And then it just started getting darker and darker. But I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of that. Yeah. I think just because I was getting older, um, maybe reading them because I read them all. And then as they were coming out, and then as uh, Deathly Hallows was coming out, I reread them uh, up like up until book six. And then I, as I read them all within like a few months, then I realized like, oh, this is this is getting a lot darker. Um, but yeah, I guess. Right on. Well, I have a, so here's a question: What yeah. school are you in, George? Yes, I can't <laughs> tell you. You can even pick Durmstrang or Bobatons or maybe one of these new. uh, I'm in Hogwarts. It's a Canadian school. It's where everyone's moving to now, the Canadian school. Well, according to Pottermore, I am a Slytherin, which is BS, but I only took the test once. And every other test I've ever taken, I'm Ravenclaw, and I know I'm a Ravenclaw, so (laughs) fuck Pottermore. All all, all I can say is I remember the the very first day I spent on set, they had to kind of sort out all all the guys that were playing kind of, you know, wizardy teachers into houses. And every single person, they they had a debate about it. It was like, um, Gryffindor, no, uh, Hufflepuff. And they got to me and they just went Slytherin straight away. I was like, hey! Hey, hang on. <laughs> oh my, that means you just look like a Slytherin. Oh, yeah, it was like, okay. Do you have dark right. hair? Fine. I'm Gryffindor. I think because also uh, my wife thinks I have traces of red in my hair, and she likes the Weasleys in there. You're a full Gryffindor. Yo, my, uh, and my son. Get Razzle, this, you're I went to I went to am the Warner I, Brothers. I am, right? You're so Hufflepuff. I think, and that's bullshit. I should be Slytherin. Like, <laughs> I went, no. Like, I'm an asshole. I would be a Sith Lord if I had Jedi no, powers. Razzle, I should be a Slytherin. Nice. You're and nice. you know what? Razzle. You want to know something else? I did that, the Patronus thing, and I got a fucking Mastiff. Like, what is that? I got a little dog? Come on. <laughs> a Mastiff I want, like, a, a dragon, dog. or I want, like, a flying deer, or, like, something that shoots lasers out of its eyes. Maybe a shark with wings. No, I want one of those things. You have a badger. Badger. I got a mastiff. Or like a what? Uh, that's funny. At least you didn't get like a prairie. No, I got Gryffindor. I actually got you Gryffindor. Like a prairie according dog. To really? A prairie dog would be. Yeah, amazing. according to the, that website, I got Gryffindor. Like what? I'm uh, I'm Gryffindor. My son, uh, he was he was only like seven months old, maybe, and I took him to the Harry Potter Museum at Warner Brothers lot. Um, and you're not supposed to be there unless you're under like over 13. But since I was visiting my wife at work, I snuck him in there, and they were like, "All right." So I stuck him on the chair, and he got sorted. So he was the youngest child ever sorted by their sorting hat, and he got Gryffindor too. So it's like a family thing. I have to take uh, wow. Leo Thames to it uh, mm-hmm. uh, to get sorted. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think um, Jimmy, what what school are you? Well, you know, I. Um when I was younger, I had reddish hair. My son has bright red hair. That's so true. I think, I think we have some Weasley blood. I believe we would be Gryffindor. You can't just be Gryffindor just because you're ginger, though. Well, I didn't no. say. Hey, I, I got, I got, a, I got red hair on my chin. I'm a ginger. I'm a nah, ginger. I think you guys are both Hufflepuff. Well, it's not I, a bad thing. 
Hufflepuff. What are you? Nice. What did you say you were? Ravenclaw. Ravenclaw. See, uh, that sounds way cooler than Gryffindor. That's because I'm smart. Gryffindor is cool. God, I might Gryffindor. be a <laughs> Razzle, I think Razzle would have ended up with like Luna Lovegood. Although I, I would love to see Harry end up with Luna Lovegood. Who's Luna Lovegood? That Jenny. albino girl who's like a f- crazy, like She's scary the girl. Coolest character. That girl who knows. Hi, Harry. Like, I- if I was setting up for girl, a road trip, you're... me personally, it'd be with Luna. She's that blonde albino Dobby. chick, right? <laughs> yeah. She's a girl. Serious black. Yo, Luna, Luna Lovegood. You could be. You'd be married to Luna Lovegood, and then you wake up. Tired in the in the nighttime, and she just appear in the doorway and freak you out because she's like glows like, hi, I'm a ghost. Hi, oh, Luna's the your, your Luna voice is the same as your Dobby voice. That's because they're the same person. <laughs> Has Luna Lovegood and Dobby ever been in the same room at the same time? <gasps> yes. Yeah. What about that Have girl they? who lives in the toilet? What what's up with that voice? Moaning, oh, moaning Myrtle. Myrtle. She's actually in the Cursed Child play too. She's um, yeah, she's around. Moaning Myrtle. Are you into her razzle? No. She's I a ghost. <laughs> Maybe when she was not a ghost. Maybe when she was not a ghost. Hey, man, she's, use, she's, she's down a, she was kind of getting freaky with Harry. Time travel back. <laughs> how, how, old, how old was Moaning Myrtle when she died? Wait, I want to well, ask like Paul a question. Was, uh, upperclassman? Yeah, was yeah. She, so, so Moaning Myrtle, oh. Moaning Myrtle was probably, is technically probably like 19 or 20, right? Floating yeah. around? Let's say 18. No, she let's, wasn't. You guys, she was in high school. Let's say she's 18 can and we, she's trying to see Harry Paul Potter naked about, in that bath. Like, that's kind of creepy, Chris girl. Child. Paul, have you seen it since you're over there? Uh, no. 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 <gasps> what? Paul. Uh, Paul, oh, these no. are privileges that English people have that <laughs> Americans do not. Yeah. Paul, I'm see? sure you can get free tickets. Get to it. It's like, it's... 20 minutes away from my house too you know oh my oh, god i'm gonna come we're over like, there soon with like, we're like seven minutes away from leavesden by car i'm gonna come so. over in the spring because arsenal are doing well in the league i'm gonna go and watch some games and we're gonna go see harry well, potter what we, in the what we should do is we should, we should go around the the, go the harry potter tour and I'll, we'll, I'll we'll take Athena too because we both play teachers and we'll, we'll give you the the real lowdown rather than what the what's on the car no yes know? i'm coming just tell me when and i'll book a flight i'll cool. be there We'll show you all the yeah, locations nice. in the city too, because there's a lot of places that that we just hang out. Like there's there's oh, Lenormand so cool. Market is when when Harry first leaves with uh, Hagrid to to go and you know is it Leaky Cauldron the first pub that he goes in at the yes. very start when he first goes in that yeah, like the Star Wars that's Cantina right you mean Lenormand which is uh, like my a regular haunt for me where I go to drink. So God, that's <laughs> so cool. cool. And Paul, Can you we, took we, me go. to the you took me to the location where. Um, Harry Potter is taken into the Ministry of Magic. That's right. Uh, by Mr. Dursley. Yeah, that was Sharon tucked away. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was cool. And um, the Millennial Bridge as well that gets taken out by the uh, by the bad guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another great sequence. Eaters. Yes, yeah, yeah. that was cool. We have like so, a lot um, of, there is there is a kind of like uh, you know, once you get to know London, it's one of these places where there there are streets that are just one thing. So for some reason it's just the way it kind of ended up. There there is there is a street that's nothing but music shops. You know, there's a street that's nothing but records, nothing but musical instruments, nothing but books, nothing but art, you know, so so we do have a tendency to do that. They're all places that are just totally kind of, you know, one thing. So for me, it kind of does feel very London that there's a street for magic, you know? That's that's not that odd, you know? And chocolates. Yeah. And wands. Yeah. And we didn't even get, look, we, we got this whole thing. We didn't even talk about Quidditch. No. We didn't talk about. That, that's, a, that's what would kill me. If I went, if I went to. to uh, we didn't talk about the golden snitch. I'm so rubbish at sport. Slurs. I just the uh, first day there. Boring. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> no, I uh, let's let's um let's say who just focusing on these two films, Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets. Is there a do you have a favorite uh, 
scene or a favorite actor or character? Mm. It's got to be Sna- Snape for me. Cause yeah, Hagrid. Oh, like Snape. Snape, though, in the beginning. Snape towards the end. Such a great actor. Yeah. Oh, I love him so, so much. So you like Hagrid. Razzle, you have a favorite? Um, I would probably say... Hermione. Razzle likes Hermione. <laughs> can I can I say I like Hermione now? Oh my gosh, Razzle. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I was, uh, definitely not Dumbledore. Definitely not MacArthur what? Park. Fuck that dude. Like I get talk. Dumbledore got cool <laughs> later. He was like this. Like you mean after the actor mean, died? Yeah, absolutely. Like oh, the only thing he did. Look, dude. Yeah, I know Richard Harris. MacArthur Park was a great song, but here's the deal. This is this is Dumbledore in these two movies, and and you said he did. A, there was a lot of ADR. Why didn't they like ADR his voice better? This is ready. If you think my voice for Dobby and and that blonde girl were the same, <laughs> tell me if this. Tell me if if Dumbledore's voice sounds any different. Hi, Harry. My name. Hi, Harry. Hey, Harry, I'm a crazy old man, no, Harry. I want, I want to hear a word of it, because I, I worked with Richard Harris on D- Gladiator 2. Dumbledore. Dumbledore sounded like he uh, like one of those cigarette machines, like like in the 80s. Yeah, I did it's, not, not know that. It's like expecting all of it, you know, all the um, reason to be this Richard Harris was one of those uh, chain smokers that has yeah. that machine next to their neck, only the battery's dying. The battery's getting low. So it's like, oh, I did not know they oh, were bad for me. I did not know they were bad for He's me. He's a legend. I really, I do prefer, I'll say I prefer Richard Harris to Michael Gambon's Dumbledore. Yeah. There's a warmth that Richard so Harris yeah, brought and um, a mystery. And I felt, not that it's one couldn't understand him, though. But they're... He's not as nuanced, Michael Gambon's Dumbledore. It got better as it went along, and it's a hard task Michael to step Gambon in. And re- it'd be like, one, right? replace Obi-Wan Kenobi in oh. Empire Strikes Back. It's a hard yeah, thing. Yeah, Ewan to- McGregor. There. There we go. No, that was a prequel. <laughs> yeah. Boom. Which they are casting a young Dumbledore now, they've they've, they've discussed. So, yeah, I, a favorite character. Maybe they'll show him lose his voice. Me. I love Dumbledore. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I do love Dumbledore. It's, it's really hard to pick because it's like picking favorite films. Well, just when you were reading it for the first time, I was so – I loved – Hagrid, he was so sweet, and he just was protecting Harry, and it was like the first person who His understood int- your, him. Harry's and your introduction to the You know what? I'm going to – I don't think I ended up picking one. I just said I didn't like Dumbledore. I'm going to say my favorite character is Lucius Malfoy because he's like a rich dude, oh. and he's like, yeah. Oh, he's, he dresses God. cool, You're and he's Slytherin like – he's, sure. he's like, hey, He looks hey. a lot like Luna Lovegood. He's got <laughs> – <laughs> he's got like elfish hair. He's got long. He looks like he should be in the band, like uh, like uh, Cinderella or something like that. He's he should. Lucius Malfoy looks like he was in the band Nelson Nelson with the Nelson Brothers. <laughs> I know what, I go, what you I'm going to go with Dobby. Well, well, no one likes him. Just, how familiar were you, were you with most of these actors? Were they all kind of familiar faces to you? None no. of them were. None except them. for Gary Oldman. Lockhart. Only Gary Oldman. You know. Yo, I mean, I knew. Uh, um, Oh, oh, I know everybody. I'm, Alan Rickman. You had yeah. um, what's his name? Uh, uh, Kenneth Branagh. Hans Gruber, uh, baby. That's talking. But maybe talking the only I wasn't yeah. familiar with the guy who played Quirrell. Um, uh-huh. Alan Rickman was great. But Richard Harris, all of these people. Yeah. Richard Harris. The whole movie is like a who's who. It, it just gets better yeah. as it goes along, yeah. which we're going to talk about on the next episode where we're going to get into <laughs> Azkaban, and we're going to get into Goblet of Fire, and we're going to get into the expanding uh, world. We're going to move beyond the, the border of Hogwarts into the larger 
Wizarding World. We're going to get into that all on the next episode. And um, so stay tuned for that or just keep listening because yeah. uh, it's just going to keep flowing in your feed. We've got Harry Potter coming at your ears. Open up your mouth. This is going to taste better than Dumbledore casting a spell right in it. We've got so much Harry Potter coming. <laughs> uh, Georgie, where can we find you online? Uh, on the internet. The internet. What? I'm just kidding. Oh, I what do you mean? You have What's to your me? handle, yo? <laughs> it's okay, Georgie on Twitter, which I'm not active. Okay, Georgie on Instagram, which are very active. Which I'm, I mean, barely. You are you post things? I post things like once. That's called a week, active. Maybe, <laughs> maybe twice a week. Whatever. Uh, Paul, where can we uh, talk more uh, franchisey stuff with you? <laughs> You can find me on Twitter with, uh, that's uh, Paul, uh, at PaulRMQ, so, as in Ralph McQuarrie. I'm following uh, you now, Paul. That's an easy easy place. Or um, or you can kind of go via Rebel Force Radio and uh, check out Stoll's Influences, where I, I talk people's ears off about the artwork behind Stoll's. Paul and Jimmy yes. uh, co-host a show on that network where they talk about um, Star Wars art Influences production design, everything that's gone into you know what's made Star Wars visually Star Wars and thematically story. It's it's a really in depth show. It's very wonderful. Jimmy also hosts the Star Wars um, Rebel Force Radio uh, show. They also analyze uh, episodes of the ongoing Rebel series. And Jimmy co-hosts the Oxygen. We were talking about John Williams' music, and I wanted to bring that before, but it's a really wonderful look at John Williams' music, his influence on uh, the Star Wars franchise. And you know, maybe in the future, Jimmy's going to do um, outside of Star Wars John Williams analysis. Maybe it'll include some Harry Potter. Yeah. But that, that is a, another wonderful show on the their networks. You can find those guys there. Jimmy, where what's your handle online? Well, you know, you can find us at rebelforceradio.com, facebook.com slash rebelforceradio, at rebelforceradio on Twitter, and then my personal is at Jimmy Mac Radio on Twitter, and I'm also on uh, Facebook. But, uh, you know, that's that's all Star Wars stuff, and I don't know. I, I think after this experience, I might be leaving that all behind, and I'm going to check in a Hogwarts and just <laughs> I'm going to put my podcast flag there and just spend the next 10 years talking about nothing but Harry Potter. No, well, you got it. Five no, there's, films there's coming. No way you'll pull me out of Star Wars. Forget Wait. about it. I'll be talking the wars until oh. the day I die. But I have to say, you know, this has been my first Harry Potter discussion with anyone in the world ever. And uh, I couldn't think of better people to, to have this discussion with. So thank you guys you so can. much for uh, not making me feel stupid. <laughs> and, and, you know, maybe I, I, you know, I brought up a few things that maybe uh, that's ground that fans may have gone over a million times before in their past. But this is so new and fresh to me. And, and I'm feeling pretty excited about it. I'm looking forward to seeing the, the new film that opens this weekend and, uh, and taking it from there and seeing where this uh, crazy Harry Potter fandom will take me. And now you can finally talk to Jason Swank about it too. Your, yes. your, your yes. Rebel Force Radio co host. He's also a fanatic. All the time yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah. Now you he's know. More, he's more into Twilight, though, isn't he, Jimmy? Yeah, he does like Twilight, and that's kind yeah. of a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Who, Who is this person? Razzle. Where can we find you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at my name is Razzle. And the number two, you can follow me on Instagram at my name is Razzle. Snapchat at my name is Razzle. Uh, MySpace, my name is Razzle. MySpace, uh, <laughs> my name is Razzle. Uh, LinkedIn, my name is Razzle. Uh, Live Journal, my Facebook, name is Razzle. Facebook is not Razzle, they banned him. <laughs> no, I got back. I'm, I'm back. I'm back. I figured back. it out. Okay. I figured it out. I, you know, maybe forged some documents, but I, they, 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 they uh, took care of that. Um, you can also find me on Friendster. <laughs> 
if you guys remember what that is. Bumble. Bumble. Yeah, I'm on Bumble. I'm on Tinder. I'm on Rayo. I'm on all those. was my name. Is his friend's name. What's his name? Kyle. He's on Grindr. His name was Jonas. Kyle. I'm on Kyle underscore Newman, N-E-W-M-A-N, on Insta and Twitter, on Facebook. You know, if you have thoughts about this stuff, want to get into further chat, you can also find us on, on uh, the franchise pod, P-O-D, right? Is that the handle exactly, Razzle? Uh, yes, we're gonna the be franchise posting, pod. We're going to be posting several pictures of Paul sitting next to Quirrell and Snape <laughs> in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> so go check those out. Paul, those should be your new uh, profile pics. <laughs> yeah. Paul, you should thinking. cosplay as Paul for Halloween. <laughs> yeah, next year Halloween. <laughs> Just go as yourself from Harry Potter. That's pretty cool. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, goes an owl. Go as an owl. Go as an owl. Hedwig. You know, I'm going to say my favorite character is Hedwig. So much character development. Yep. All right. So with that, um, we will uh, we'll see you all soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye, guys. Stupefy. The Franchise is a Howl original and production of Midroll Media. The show is edited and produced by Jimmy Mac McInerney and hosted by Kyle Newman and me, Razzle Dangerously. See you next time. This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que no está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hold on, Spanish Aki Presents.